Series two, Dictators, already teased with Vladimir Putin's episode. And w- There's been some time since then. And we're going to have to quantify this this next dictator in, in numbers of Putins, oh, yeah. right? Oh, correct. Yeah, yeah the, the, the scale of dictatorship. I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a high Putin count. From what it I is. read. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Listeners at home, make sure you comment on the Instagram post what you think the rating will be after you listen. Rating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't made an Instagram post in a while. Yeah, that's my bad. <laughs> Just comment well, on an older post. It's been on our stories and stuff, but... Yeah, we post the episode stories, but, but we haven't made the it. The actual post, Just yeah. Just comment, so do something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smoke signal. Yeah, I'll try to make one for this one. Um, so we got Pol Pot this time around. Now... Kind of an under-the-radar dictator, I would say. I think we can all agree that on that, fair? yeah. Doesn't, doesn't get quite the rap he deserves. Yeah, he was doing his thing during... kind of overshadowed by a couple other... Major world... Conflicts. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's in the same region, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> he, he, of course, was the despotic leader of Khmer Rouge-controlled Cambodia. Are we okay with that pronunciation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've also heard Keimer. But I don't know. I think Khmer or Khmer yeah. sounds. Khmer doesn't sound like. Well, it's well, too uh, German. What I think we need to do right now is just uh, warn all of our listeners, which is what I'm doing right now, that our pronunciations are not correct. And if you wish to know the correct pronunciations, look them up on your own. We uh, we do not have <laughs> yeah. time to fact look check them up your damn self. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we just. I mean, I watched videos that kind of did some of the pronunciation and. I could tell they spent a good amount of time trying to figure that out, and I just I don't have that kind of yeah. time. It's such so, a it's such a wildly different like script than what I'm used to because it's yeah. crazier oh, yeah. than even I can even try you know, and romant or uh, what what would be the word um, anglicize anglicize yeah there we go romanize yeah yeah I can anglicize like Chinese stuff even if it's like you know not something you could you know read directly that would you know well I mean if you think Chinese looks foreign. If you think Mandarin looks foreign, some of those Southeast Asian ones, I don't want to sound like insensitive. They look made up. Yeah, I mean, they look it, fictional. Yeah, I mean, in the same in the same vein, like I, I have no idea even where to begin to recognize any kind of characters in like a, a lot of Middle Eastern languages as well. Like he, I run like into Hebrew that problem or, on. Oh well, yeah, I run into that problem a lot on GeoGuessr. Yeah, you'll see like mm-hmm. a sign that's yep. in some sort of Southeast Asian script, and it's like. You have like thirty good, okay. thirty countries to guess from. <laughs> yeah, thirty countries with like three billion people. Yeah, yeah. and the, one of the hardest to be like India because it's like, what do they have like two hundred languages that this is yeah. speaking in India? It's like it's God. Yeah, your guess is why they kind of just they kind of just started using English as their like state language. I think. I think so. Yeah, but I mean, makes sense internationally. Thanks, England. Yeah. For creating a language, for creating a language, Sick colonial rule, dude. For creating a language that's so easy to learn that everybody learns it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, um, it's good marketing. So, Greg, Greg, you got the you got the early, the budding Pol Pot. Is that right? I do. I do have the beginnings of Pol Pot. So, when he was uh, potted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we should probably. Oh, there's, there's, yeah, there's too many jokes to to, to be made there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's actually we need to toe the line here. Let's or let's let's say this one more disclaimer. 
I'm going to try to be pretty serious about this. Yeah. If if I don't mean to come off as insensitive if I, like, chuckle at a statistic or something that's, you know, just incredibly grim. Mm-hmm. It's shock factor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but um, the uh, the actions of Pol Pot in the end led to the deaths of, we'll get into this, but many, 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 many people, drastically more so than... Uh, if we're measuring our, our number of Putins based on pure deaths, this will be near infinite Putins. But, uh, <laughs> anyway. Pol Pot killed infinity people. <laughs> not quite, not what I'm saying. But uh, an insane amount that we'll obviously get into later. But uh, let's, uh, let's start with something a little more innocent, and that'll be a little baby Pol Pot. If we hadn't already said this, and I don't think we had, um, Pol Pot was not born Pol Pot. That is not the actual name of the man we are talking about, at least as far as a birth name goes. And we'll talk about this later, but he does change his name another time later. I don't remember what you guys said that was, but uh, anyway, uh, the man we are talking about today was born uh, Saloth Sar, um, who I'll be referring to throughout my the rest of my kind of discussion here about the early life here as just Sar, his last name um sar actually means white or pale which uh references relatively uh light complexion compared to a lot of other uh Khmer people so if uh we hadn't mentioned this already either before uh Khmer is a an ethnic group in uh cambodia um so i believe the majority ethnic group in cambodia and uh it is and uh sar was uh born of mixed chinese and Khmer uh heritage uh, but he didn't speak Chinese, nobody in his family spoke Chinese, and uh, as far as their like family goes, they basically lived as if they were like, fully Khmer. Um, he was born in the city of Kampong Tom, uh, in the, or just outside of that city, in a village called uh, Prex Sabauv. So, uh, fr- so, at the time that he was born, uh, Cambodia was under French colonial rule, and uh, French colonial records placed his birth date at the 25th of May, 1928, but uh, later a biographer by the name of Philip Short uh, claims that he was actually born in uh, March of uh, 1925, so he was a little bit older than yeah. perhaps recorded. So It's a big difference. Yeah, a few years. That's a pretty, pretty big difference there. He's born to a father named Loth and uh, a mother named Sok Nem, and uh, his father... Um, later took the name of Salath Pem. Um, and it was a fairly uh, prosperous family he was born into. So they, they owned something like 20, 20 something acres of, uh, of farmland for rice production. And, uh, they owned several draft cattle. Um, they had pretty much the largest house in their town and, uh, whenever they needed to like harvest the rice, they'd actually hire a bunch of, uh, local peasants and things like that. So, from an early age, he wasn't exactly like a poor from a poor family or destitute background or anything like that. He was the eighth of nine children, uh, but like three of them, three of them died in like early childhood, um, and they were all raised as uh, Theravada Buddhists. Um, and they would like that was actually a pretty pretty central part of his early childhood. They went to like festivals and things like that, and his mother was a pretty devout Buddhist. Not something that'll be a huge part of later in life, but interesting that that was interesting that Buddhism, a very peaceful uh, religion, was a big part of his early life. 
So, yeah, he doesn't really go with the flow. No, not exactly. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned before, um, Cambodia was under French colonial rule at the time, uh, but was uh, technically a monarchy. Uh, but the real power, obviously, is going to lie in the French colonial regime at the time. So, uh, Sars' family actually had connections to Cambodian, Cambodian royalty, uh, with his cousin Mayak uh, being a consort of the king uh, Sisawath Madhavang. Um, so, uh, when Sar was uh, six years old, him and a brother were sent to live in uh, Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, to live with his cousin and uh, kind of get a better education, get a, a, you know, kind of a better, a better life living in the capital. Which is actually a pretty common thing at the time. So, like, in Cambodia back then, like, informal adoptions by wealthier family members were a really big thing. Hmm. So, um, interestingly, he spent some time as, like, a novice monk learning some, uh, like, Buddhist teachings and uh, learning to read and write in the Khmer language when he was there. Uh, very weird that he was a monk. And then, yeah, a lot of that just did not stick. No. Clearly, yeah, it didn't take. <laughs> and and we'll get into where and why that didn't stick. So, mm. um, I think a large part of that was the French. And well, nice. again, we'll get into that. Interesting. Yeah, anyway, um, so um, so yeah, uh, a bit of a flop here. So in summer of uh, 1935, he went to live with his brother uh, Suong and hit Suong's uh, wife and child. Also in summer of 1935. He began education at a Roman Catholic primary school. Big flip from, from his uh, previous uh, Buddhist, yeah, what's Buddhist school. Yeah, that's great. Like, yeah, I, mean, um, I guess school is one thing, but well, it was a French that's... school. It was a French school, uh, like a French Roman Catholic school, which kind of makes sense. The a lot of a lot of Catholic French. Uh, the, yeah, that yeah. school being called the Ecole Michet, um, and his cousin uh, Miak that was. Previous, previously mentioned uh, paying his tuition. So uh, most of his classmates at that place were uh, like children of French bureaucrats and also Catholic Vietnamese people. Um, and at that school, he learned French and kind of got familiar with Christianity. So something that also I found interesting and is kind of key throughout the rest of the story is that Sar really wasn't that smart. He wasn't that academic, excuse me, academically gifted. Um, and uh, he actually ended up getting held back two years at that school. Anyway, he uh, he ended up earning his uh, primary school certificate thing at the age of sixteen. So that's like his like middle school, I think, degree or whatever. Anyway, um, so um, while he was in school, the king of Cambodia died, and uh, the French authorities then appointed a man uh, named Nordam Sihanouk. Sihanouk actually started a new junior middle school, uh, which was uh, established in a town called Kampong Cham. Sar was actually selected as a boarder there in 1942. So um, kind of getting that level of education at the time gave him somewhat of a privileged position because there wasn't a ton of inf uh, education infrastructure in Cambodia at the time. And uh, at that school, he learned to play violin and took part in school plays and spent a lot of his spare time playing football and basketball, which will be an interesting note later, and there's a reason that I Like American that. football or soccer? Uh, it, the article I was reading doesn't state. Mm. I, I assume soccer. I assume soccer, yeah, too. Yeah, it's 
it's Asia, so I assume, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, several of the people he met at that school, uh, specifically a person named Hu, Hu Nim and Q Samphan, uh, later ended up serving in his government. So some of the connections he made there were... During uh, a vacation when he was at that school, um, him and several friends from his college theater troupe uh, went on a um, provincial tour uh, to raise money for a trip um, to Angkor Wat, which is like a um, Buddhist monastery, I believe, right? It's, a, the, yeah, it's like, like the world's largest <clears throat> religious structure. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy, incredible... Yeah, it's probably... <clears throat> I guess I'll look it up right now. What exactly it was, but it's just I know a it's a Buddhist temple. To the, it's a remnant of the Khmer Empire. Yeah, it was just like absolutely massive <laughs> religious temple, and uh, Jeez, look at that, that ended up that ended up. Um, it really. It was actually. Good. Sorry, just real quick. It was. It is a Buddhist temple now, but it was constructed as a mausoleum. Mm. God, for the king of the Khmers. Yo, everything Khmer. is incredible. Man. Everything was a grave. Yeah, pyramid, Taj Mahal, yeah, <laughs> all the big stuff. White sure. House. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, you don't you don't know that one? There's some sort of boomer Biden joke we can make there about you know, <laughs> dead man walking in the White House. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll leave it. Uh, anyway, his trip to Angkor Wat kind of really uh, left an impression on him because I know that later in life, like. He said in some speech, in like I think it was like 1978, something along the lines of like, if our people can build uh, Angkor Wat, we can do anything. Um, so that was the only time, as far as I know, that he actually visited Angkor Wat. So anyway, so in 1947, he left that school, the uh, um, the College Prem Sinahuk. He uh, he passed some exams that ended up admitting him into uh, the Lycée Sisawath. Lycée being the French word for school, I believe, or I know it's not the yeah. word for college. Lycée is school. High school. Yeah. Well, I think it's not important. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not an important station. Yeah. Good point. Um, anyway, basically he took some, he took some exams to get into, um, like the upper classes there ended up actually failing and then went and studied, uh, and he enrolled at a school to study carpentry at the Ecole Technique in Rousseau, Kio. Um, yeah, basically he just went and started studied carpentry for like a year and then studied up and, and ended up actually, uh, passing his, uh, his classes to get into, um, or passing his exams to get into higher classes after that. So he kind of took like an easy year of doing carpentry and kind of worked his way up from there. So here's where things get really interesting. Even though he wasn't clearly wasn't like the greatest student in the world, uh, he ended up um, getting selected in the January in January of 1950 to be one of uh, 21 students from Cambodia to go study in France. Like, there's only 21 Cambodians in total that got to go study in France at that time. It was like extremely elite and uh, selective process, which I don't understand how exactly he was able to do that. Maybe it was his royal connections or something like that, but. Anywho, he uh, ended up going to school at the École Française d'Electricité. So he was studying radio electronics. Um, and uh, he spent uh, three years in Paris. And um, there's a whole lot I could say about his time there. 
but uh, pretty much the long and short of it is that he started studying communism. Because the big driver there was that... <laughs> well, I mean, communism at the time was extremely popular in France already. At the time, the Communist Party of France, they were getting like 25% of the electorate in general elections in 1950. Oh, wow. Yeah, like a lot more than you would possibly expect. Like, So basically during, um, during Sars' time in Paris, he trying to figure out um, what the best approach to be would be to oust the French colonial government back in Cambodia. And he started studying um, like separatist movements and, and revolutionary governments uh, throughout, well, Asia and the world and started noticing a common theme, and that's that almost all of them that have been successful were communist governments, which led him to start reading more and more uh, communist literature. Uh, but interestingly, also um, read quite a bit of French literature. He was quite a big fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which I thought was very interesting to note. <clears throat> you know, I saw in a uh, in some of my research that, and you can see where this might have gotten, where, where this could have turned him a little funky. Yeah. Is I think he had a, a difficult time understanding the writings of Marx. That is correct. And instead read up on, like, Mao and Stalin, specifically. Specifically mm. Stalin, but also had a thing for Mao. Yeah. But, uh, and also, we'll get into this later, visited Mao. Or, well, not Mao. Um, visited China during the culture. Mao. Did he visit Mao specifically? I know that he visited... Yeah, Mao, had, they had a discussion. Okay. Mao had advice for him. He visited with both Mao and Deng. Deng Xiaoping, that's what I meant, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. So, anyway, uh, yeah, so... Basically, he there was a um, the Cercle Marxiste, um, basically a group of um, Cambodian students in France that were studying uh, Marxism, and there was they kind of broke it into like cells, and uh, the cell that he was in, and he always gravitated towards from the very beginning, was always the cell that viewed armed violent action as the correct way of doing things not peaceful transition he kind of from the get-go like there was there was people that were you know interested in implementing a con or a, uh, a communist government in a peaceful manner and uh there was a kind of a violent <laughs> uh offshoot and he he gravitated towards that <laughs> immediately um so uh he also worked on like their newspaper and some other stuff and they ended up joining the French Communist Party. There's a whole bunch of stuff about their meetings and things like that. But yeah, as you were saying, Kane definitely had trouble reading Marx, especially some of his denser stuff, not the easiest stuff to read. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, probably not such a great thing that he became extremely familiar and extremely enamored by the teachings of Joseph Stalin. Yeah, so he, he studied in France for three years, and that's really where like his core communist beliefs came to be. And he returned to Cambodia in 1953, actually on the exact same day in which Sinahuk uh, disbanded the Democratic-controlled National Assembly and began ruling by decree. So kind of a... Uh, <laughs> kind of a good time for him to be coming back in the sense of calling a calling him to action, you know? Um, mm -hmm. 
the exact day that his <laughs> king decided to rule by decree. Um, and uh, part of that was uh, actually imprisoning Democratic members of parliament without trial. So basically at that point, once that started, um, this is kind of the very beginnings of the Cambodian Civil War. Uh, civilian massacres and all sorts of other atrocities kind of started to take place pretty soon after that. And what ends up happening is that um, during the next uh, 10 years or so, uh, what Saar ends up doing is basically spending a whole lot of time uh, just kind of slowly developing the Marxist-Leninist movement within Cambodia, uh, and in particular uh, kind of colluding with the um, Viet Minh and kind of joining their ranks for a good bit of time um, and learning how they operated and uh, trying to get their assistance. And most of that to no avail. He doesn't have a whole lot of success getting the North Vietnamese involved in, um, in their civil war. Uh, what he does have success in, however, uh, is kind of getting along with the Chinese. He goes and visits Beijing in, I want to say it was, yeah, 1965. And, uh, yeah, you were, you were correct, Kane. Um, his official host was Deng Xiaoping. They were, uh, they were impressed on kind of his views on, uh, like, class struggles and just understanding general uh, Marxist-Leninism um, and trained him on some stuff with, uh, like, a lot of it was basically training on political purges, and he, he was he was visiting during the cultural cultural revolution, uh, which ended up influencing a lot of his uh, later policies. So, I kind of brushed over about ten years of like <laughs> some of the most fundamental stuff he was doing, but really he wasn't doing anything huge. It was basically a whole lot of him being influenced by the Viet Minh and um, visiting Viet Cong encampments and traveling on the, uh, what was the, why am I forgetting this? The trail that the Viet Minh, or the Viet Cong used. Um, the Ho Chi Minh trail. trail, yeah. He, he hiked that, like, in 1965, um, and, and met with Ho Chi Minh, actually, in 1965. But basically, they were pretty preoccupied with the Vietnam War, and... Um, didn't really want to get involved in the Cambodian Civil War at all. Um, but uh, they did want um, basically any kind of communist uh, side of that to win. They obviously did not want any kind of American-backed uh, group to be to be winning in the uh, Cambodian Civil War. Because um, the, there's basically three sides to the Cambodian Civil War. Um, there was the... Um, King's government, there was the um, Marxist-Leninist uh, um, revolutionary fighters, and there were also some uh, right-wing uh, groups that were backed by the U.S. and South Vietnamese governments. They really didn't Trying play... to do a whole damn coup. They really did, yeah, they did, but they failed at it. They really weren't that <clears throat> successful, and uh, all that the Viet Cong really, and Viet Minh really cared about was basically keep those groups not in power. They didn't really give right. they didn't really yeah. care if it was the king or the um, communists. They just wanted to not worry about that. But anyway, um, yeah, so 
what the what Sar was really doing with his learnings from the Viet Cong and kind of you know developing his Marxist Leninist movement in the country was preparing for an all out assault on the king's government and and really an, an overthrow of the government to completely install a communist government in in Cambodia which I believe is is that where I'm turning that over to you Kane is pretty much to the, Daniel to Dan okay yeah right. well Dan's going to be telling us a little bit more about the kind of meat and potatoes meat and, meat and potatoes <laughs> of the civil war cuz what I've been talking about so far is the lead up to it cuz there's been I mean yeah and I mean Greg this is not um this is by design. This is, you chose this, but th- this was the most boring part. I don't want to say we're going to get into the exciting stuff because it's pretty. Yeah, gets pretty ugly. But this oh, is yeah. where we're going to start going. You know. What I'm oh saying? yeah, definitely. And the dude had his idea. He got his ideas. Yep. Now let's see what he does with them. So, like Greg said, there's kind of like this kind of like a three way civil war here. Um, yeah. that's why we should be streaming on youtube so people can see paul god damn dude i wish i wish i had four monitors when we're recording like i want a monitor for the screen for zoom for audacity and my notes (laughs) so you don't have zoom up at all you're saying or i have zoom up and mozilla firefox right now i will open up my notes when it's my section and audacity is always in the background but i'd like to have it open if possible you know about like the gallery view and all that right uh, for Zoom? Yeah. I'm in the gallery view. It's just taking up an entire monitor, oh, okay. which is maybe the problem. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. We stack. Maybe I'll just go half a screen for each thing. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh. I, uh, I'm God. I'm a big fan of my, my work setup. I got three monitors, but I got two portrait Jeez. and one, one landscape. So I got well, la- well, land, landscape in the middle and portrait on either side. Wow. So I, I keep Teams open on one, Outlook open on one, and then whatever I'm doing in the middle. It's great. Oh, God. <sighs> Got to be able to talk about peeps. So we got a three-way civil war. Uh, Greg kind of gave you the rundown. You have the standing government under the king. You have the sort of hard-right conservative government or not, I don't want to call it a government, like uprising or coup attempt mm-hmm. that's, uh, that is sort of backed by the United States and South Vietnam because the whole time that this civil war is going on, we are in Vietnam, so that conflict is ongoing. Um, and then there's the Khmer Rouge, the sort of Marxist you know, end goal is communism movement under... Not like technically under Pol Pot yet, but what I'm going to kind of get into, and then I'm sure Kane is going to talk a little bit about how he consolidates it, is like how he makes himself the leader of the party. So, yeah. real quick, Dan, yeah. do you have do you have a, a statistic one that I saw about the bombs the U.S. dropped? Yeah, on- I have okay. bombs and mass graves. But I'm not going to get into the mass graves because I kind of think that's your territory. I've well, got. I, I'd like you to there's, pad it out for me. But yeah, there's okay. the one. There's at least the one figure about bombs that absolutely. I thought you were going to say there's at least one mass grave. There's been one, <laughs> Sorry, maybe th- two mass graves. Yeah, 
at least 10. So in 1968 is when sort of like the conflict that you would deem the Civil War started. Um, This was like really for like the Khmer Rouge, it basically is like these little attacks here and there. It's like an insurgency at this point, right? They're like, they're like trying to take over little towns, little farm areas. They're like attacking police. They're seizing weapons. And just generally they try to start to like spread. They start in the northwest part of the country and the capital is in like the southeast-ish, right? So they, they kind of have to take over a large swath of the country as they go. But like Greg said, the end goal is sort of one big, you know, takeover or invasion of the capital. The sort of hard right conservative U.S. backed insurgency, I guess I'll call them, coup attempt is sort of in like the northeast part of the country at the time. Now, the problem is when these like small attacks started happening by these two insurgencies, the government under Sihanouk responded by just absolutely carpet bombing the hell out of most of the country, wherever they thought the Khmer Rouge were. And the result is that pretty quickly, the recruitment for the Khmer Rouge was super easy. You know, because you have people losing their home, their livelihood, and it's like the king and the government itself destroying their property and their livelihood. Of course, they're going to join the folks in the corner who are like, hey, we'll make sure you have land and a means to survive, and we're going to kick those guys out. And sort of throughout these five years, really like the main crux of the Civil War is 1970 to 75. Throughout those five years, Pol Pot, a.k.a. Tsar, he sort of starts to like put himself into the position of like, I am going to end up leading after the dust settles, right? He starts to do things that sort of solidify his position as a leader with the Khmer Rouge and eventually like the, the communist party. So in 1970 though, that, that, um, far right conservative coup, which is happening in the different part of the country, they actually succeed. So they, they overrun the capital city and the king, Sihanouk, and his you know, closest allies flee the country. <clears throat> so in 1970, there is a successful coup. But from the perspective of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, like the revolution must continue, right? It's that the other coup attempt is not like accomplishing what they're setting out to do. So the violence in the civil war continues. But here's where it gets kind of twisty. So Sihanouk, the king, he flees to Beijing. And the communist leaders, which I think is kind of strange that he's like harbored by a communist government. Yeah. <clears throat> but what happens is the communist leaders in China and North Vietnam convince him, the king, deposed king, to support the Khmer Rouge against the conservative coup that just took over. So they're kind of playing some chess here, right? They're like... 4D chess. 4D chess. Yeah. 
four-dimensional chess. <laughs> Listen, you may be the king. But let the, let the communists run your country. You'll get back into power. We promise. We won't tell the you how. Pawns shall rise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so Sienuk throws his support to the Khmer Rouge. That also helped recruitment and just general momentum grow. Um, a lot of these recruits that were joining the Khmer Rouge are the exact type of people that you sort of expect to, you know, gravitate towards these types of, like, socialist, communist-leaning, like, you know, revolutionary-type groups, which is just, like, very poor people, people, like, who, you know, maybe their, like, homes and lives were destroyed by the government that was running, like, the capitalist economy, you know, like... People that are very like destitute and and um, pretty desperate for for a great deal of change, and he re- so he recruits a lot of these people from like the so-called peasant class, and it really allows him to like shape his followers however he decides, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Now, many people in the U.S kind of only know about Cambodia as like an extension of the Vietnam War, right? We like kind of know that there were bombings in Cambodia by the U.S. during Vietnam, but like that might be the extent of like general public not public understanding of Cambodia at this time. However, there were also U.S. troops that were sent to Cambodia to um, to help support that conservative government that had taken over the leader of that conservative coup and then government uh what's his name where is it where is it lan noel question mark (laughs) (laughs) i'm with it yeah that sounds right to me so this this guy is very pro relationship with the united states you know very pro capitalism and so the U.S. wants to keep him in there, especially to have an ally in that region with Laos and Vietnam right there. So, so they actually send, we actually send troops in there to help uh, out a little bit, defend the capital, and fight a little bit against the Khmer Rouge. This also, combined with the outstanding amount of tonnage of bombs that the U S drops on Cambodia also helps with recruitment efforts for the Khmer Rouge. So the stat that I have, and if anybody found anything different, obviously throw it out, but between the beginning of 1968 and April of 1970, so about two, two and a half years, the U S dropped 2.7 million tons of bombs on Cambodia which is about three times the amount of bombs that we dropped on Japan during World War II. I see the gears turning in Greg's head. I'm wondering if he's thinking the same thing I am. Greg, please take the floor for a second. We didn't, drop that. We didn't drop that many bombs on Japan. Oh. <clears throat> well, okay, well then... Other, I'll say other than... I mean, obviously, the nu- nuclear bombs were really large. They, but, those count but, as more than... Yeah, those... We but, like, we didn't really... count those as, as more far than as tonnage, <laughs> As far as tonnage goes... We didn't really drop that many bombs on Japan itself, like because mm. the like it was only towards the very very end of the war that we were actually starting to be able to bomb. So we like firebomb Tokyo, 
right. um, and stuff <laughs> like that. Like, range. Yeah, like it was very difficult to, for us to get to that point, you know, and we didn't really drop that many bombs. I what think... I, what I... There was a... Kane, did you have the stat that I'm maybe thinking of? Yeah, uh, and Greg, uh, maybe this is what you saw. I saw this in a video that in that stretch of time, we dropped more bombs on Cambodia than all of the Allied powers used in World War II. That's correct. Nice. That's that's the... <laughs> That's the feat. That's that's the stat. That's the stunner. Of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so think about that for a second. Like that's that's yeah. insane. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Nixon went a little wild with the bombs. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that we dropped that many bombs on a country that we were not even at war with. Not officially. Yeah. yeah. Like we just decided to level half of that country. Cool. Because we were at war with a country. Two countries separated from Cambodia. Laos is in between Cambodia and Vietnam, part of it. Well, hold on. Cambodia is directly bordering South it Vietnam, right? Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, South Vietnam. Which is what which is like our not where we would have been bombing. Well, yeah, but it was like our ally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I mean, as far as like bombing the person who's in the backyard of our ally that kind of makes sense at least you know if the, if there was communists in the backyard i mean i'm not saying it's justified but it i hope not no no i mean we <laughs> but obviously it's not as bad as i was making it out well i'm just i'm not saying i'm just saying it's not like they were like bombing myanmar in the middle of this conflict like that'd be a little ridiculous you know <laughs> like just like let's go bomb those people way over there you know yeah. it's it's right next to what we were trying to defend. I mean, and that's why Saigon isn't Saigon anymore, you know? For sure. So, okay, I'm glad I got the numbers right, though. And also, I'm glad you guys added that World War II comparison because the Japan one, I was I couldn't find anything else, and that was pretty vague, like, tough to nail down. But compare it to all the allies in World War II, that's, that's a doozy. This little mini section, I'm almost done here. This little mini section is called uh, Momentum Grows for Marxism and the Khmer Rouge. By 1972, various Marxist groups held at least half of the country, but the Khmer Rouge at its core wasn't really responsible for this much. Most of it at this point was like the Vietnamese who were either sending soldiers into Cambodia to support the communist, you know, like this Marxist uprising or them like advising and helping out and all that stuff. Regardless, um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge started to sort of plan for like, what's it going to look like when we finally take the capital, which I think is kind of a smart move rather than like just focusing on goal number one, you know, what's going to happen when that actually occurs got to kind of have a plan for that so they start getting a little bit more selective with their recruitment and they focus even more on even like more destitute populations so like the poor peasant class not even like the middle peasants or the students they start training uh they start more carefully training like military and civilian leaders so like civilian leaders that would actually run the government when they take the capital and they take the whole country. Pol Pot started taking tours of 
like Marxist controlled areas, which they called the liberated zones. And he just basically was trying to help organize like local election of, you know, Marxist sort of sympathetic local leaders throughout those zones as well. And they started centralizing some industries. So like food, like farming became centrally run um, in their like liberated zones, medicine, you know, stuff that would like help the revolution continue. Um, but they also started to do like a little bit of land redistribution as they went. It's kind of like they were practicing. Fast forward, summer of 1973, the Khmer Rouge launched their first offensive on the capital. It kind of fails, but not too bad. Um, within like the next year, talking summer of 1974, Lon Knoll, who's again is the leader of that conservative right group who's currently running the country, he starts to lose a massive amount of support, both domestically and internationally. So if you think about like where the U.S. is at in 1974-75, they are evacuating. Yeah. Um, so they're not send, They're definitely not sending troops into Cambodia. They're definitely not bombing Cambodia as much. Uh, they're not really investing anything in protecting Lon Nol and his government. And so then finally by 1975, uh, basically the troops in the capital decide to surrender. It's not like Lon Nol waves the white flag. It's like the troops just kind of are like, okay, you know what? We see the writing on the wall here. Yeah. <laughs> They're not paying me enough for this. Now, Kane, do you talk about what they do to the capital city right away or no? Um, I, I did, but it was like a few sentences. So I've got a lot to say stuff. about this. You wanted too. to go for it. Yeah. I was yeah. Say. All oh, I've yeah. got is that like one of the sort of remarkable sort of astonishing things that they do is they decide to just literally empty the capital city over like two and a half million people were marched out of the capital city, just into the countryside. Yeah. It wasn't the even crazy, just like, go the craziest march. thing is <laughs> yeah. the craziest thing is how immediate it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like the second they controlled the capital, it was like, all right, we're in control. Yeah. Everybody, everybody leave yeah. now, now. Yeah. And like well, leave your say. stuff. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, because it was under it was under the guise that it was for, uh, they feared that, or they you know they said there's going to be a bombing by the U.S. here. You can uh, come back in three which, days, which was total bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, which and is so crazy. that's why they that's how they convinced people to just leave their stuff and everything because it was just like you can come back in three days, but right now you need to go. And this oh. is like to me, this is a perfect example of how U.S. policy failed. In, in this instance, or is like the fact that we had been bombing pretty indiscriminately made that believable. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. And, and if, the, if that had not been a believable thing, people wouldn't have left, you know, and they would have had a lot more trouble doing what they did, which was basically the reason they were trying to drive people out of the, out of the capital city there, Pompen, was so that they could really kind of get the ball rolling for their their own cultural revolution. Oh, yeah, you don't want, yeah. like, loyalists in the capital city no, yeah. where decisions are being... You want to yeah. get... So what they basically did was they made everybody leave, and then anybody coming back in had to be approved by the government. 
And so by getting everybody to mobilize themselves out of fear, by being able to manipulate the fear of the U.S. government bombing them, that's how they were able to make this happen. And to me, that's... Pretty smart. Well, It's very smart, but it also is just extremely sad and disappointing for as somebody from the United States, like, knowing that our government's policy is the reason that that was able to happen. You know? Yeah, we gave them a boogeyman to use. Exactly. So that's that's where I left it, because that seemed like a good stopping point. Like, take the capital city, revolution, complete, yeah. you know? That's where you take over Kane, right? Yes. And I'd like any of you to jump in with any corrections, because what I'm trying to do here is I, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the government uh, over this point, because at the end of the day, we're talking about Pol Pot and what he did yep. in the context of his dictatorial powers. Did we ever go over when... Did he already become Pol Pot? I kind of blazed past it it was during the revolution it was okay. like 1972 or something yeah. so something we to our listeners something we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast was that um this man's name was not pol pot by birth he decided to choose the name pol pot would you said when exactly was that dan like 72, 72 is what he said 72 okay yeah so during the during the civil war there part of the reason for that was that I think he wanted to kind of, I mean, obviously make a name for himself, you know, like (laughs) he, I mean, a a big part of, he wanted some sort of name that for for lack of a, for lack of a better term, a name that rolls off the tongue, something you remember, like to all of our listeners, I mean, our listeners probably know who Pol Pot is. They probably don't know who Sar is, you know, like, or, Right. What is uh, Saloth Sar? Nobody knows who that is. Everybody knows who Pol Pot is, and he understands that like somebody like Stalin, like, that's a strong name, yeah. strong leader, and he wanted to probably reinvent himself as the supreme. Well, yeah, because it was supposed to be, and it, it was supposed to be just like I think he wanted to be more of a character than an actual person. Because like yeah, you know, uh, and I mean that as somebody you could like idolize as like a yes. Because they released an entirely falsified biography about him to the Cambodian people. Yep, and I know um, that he was also he was also really selective about who was able to even talk to him. Oh, really? Yeah, that is something when, I we forgot should say, to mention. Yeah, I, I did see that the name is is unless I'm misunderstanding this, it's the short form of it's technically French, but it still works because they're the same letters. Um. Political potential. Oh, the Pol Pot was. It was politique potentiel. That's pretty. Uh, potentiel. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what his that's where his name came from, and then he just shortened it to for the reasons you said, Craig. Hmm. Well, and also because you can't just be like, my name's political potential. And I'm <laughs> so yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, uh, so is, I mean, rappers do things like that, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, so, and the, sometimes the rappers and Pol Pot are very much the same group. <laughs> so. uh, um, that just reminds now, me of uh, DMX naming himself after a drum, drum machine and then later deciding it means Dark Man X. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, um, it was originally it was like the name of a drum machine. It was like the DMX dash whatever. Yeah. Sure. And then mm. later was he's like, yeah, it means Dark Man X. Drum, drum machines, piece, by the important way. note, drum machines 
That, I guess they, they have quite a legacy then of just the names. Oh, absolutely. Like sticking eight, around. 808. Like 808. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, sorry, if I may. <laughs> oh, so at first, you know, once they emptied Phnom Penh, Pol Pot and some of the Khmer Rouge leaders just kind of snuck right in there and uh, set up their home base in the train station there because it was easy to defend. Slowly moved out to the Silver Pagoda, like the they took over the government buildings. But the point was, this wasn't supposed to be like known. And in fact, they got Sinek to come back and they were like, we're going to pretend that you're just agreeing with us. You're going to be the head of state, but I'm going to make the decisions. Nice. Didn't go well. He, you know, he got it. It worked, but he, the Sinuk, got pretty alienated, increasingly so, by what Pol Pot was doing and the kind of Stalinist changes he was making, and so eventually stepped down. And it was at that point that they couldn't really keep the the facade going, and so instead of they they rebranded as the country was now Democratic Kampuchea. And it was like, it's clear as day, <laughs> I'm, you know, we're in charge now. The Pol Pot said, like, the, the period before was the kind of cultural revolution getting people in the right state of mind. And then the socialist movement would start now, now that they were Democratic Capuchin. And this is where the killings really start. This is the part that, like, really strikes me because it's like, it seems to me like Pol Pot took all of the absolute worst parts of the Soviet system and Chinese systems and mm-hmm. combined all the worst things possible. <laughs> Into some Frankenstein's monster. Of just death and destruction, government. yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea was A, he wanted everybody to be the same. You know, that's that's a pretty and that's a pretty broad way to describe like I know, but like I mean, I don't know how it was down to like levels of thought. Yeah. You wanted people to think the same like, way and think l- the same thing. The so. thing that was crazy to me was that romantic love was illegal. Yeah, to me that's like the most like how how should I say, like cartoonishly evil parts about this, like I mean, like <laughs> yeah, you could think of much, like yeah. I mean communism like stamps out an individualism like like people like right-wing people like talking about like how evil communism is is due to like the suppress the suppression of the suppression of the individual it's, yeah it's like know? a caricature but, of like, communism yeah it's like the yeah the the nth degree of that is what the Khmer Rouge was like trying to implement which was like you know and any kind of like when when people were being like they killed people with glasses like, because they thought that glass, yeah, glasses were illegal. Yes. Like, <laughs> uh, I'll get into that. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Um, in fact, that was like the next thing. Oh, yeah. No, I just, I just like, uh, to yeah. me, it's so just like, just, it's just so me, insane. Greg. They that sometimes have a something point. that seems like such a caricature was a real thing. Yeah, sure. But like we were saying, you know, he wanted the same levels of thought. You know, you had to ask permission to. Be in love. Uh, you couldn't store food anywhere. You could only give what get what was given to you. You know that kind of just like absurdly dehumanizing. And uh, oh yeah, Pol Pot had a big thing for farming. You know he grew up in that farming community. That probably had an influence. But he thought that agrarian society was going to be the only way because 
The need mm-hmm. for food is the great equalizer. You know, everybody's got to eat. And if you make that the way you work, you know, it's like he, he thought agrarian societies ran well. And that's, sure, that's true in small numbers. That's not really something you can apply on a national level. Uh, so everybody was stripped of their job titles. Uh, you know, trained professionals were like, well, you're a farmer now. doesn't matter if you know how to perform <laughs> open heart surgery. Spoiler alert. Somebody else will they handle didn't. that. Somebody more loyal to the party. And, it's, you know, people have said this about Nixon, but this to the just a thousand times more, he strikes me as somebody very paranoid because uh, Pol Pot, because he had these lists of of people and not in the same way that like Stalin had lists but just like categories of people that were a threat you know and like Greg said one of these is people with glasses because they seemed more intelligent just because by nature of having glasses and so should be uh, shot and killed for that and we've got basically anybody that was related to the Cambodian the previous government was rounded up and I'm just going to get into, like, it's, it's going to be the killings now. Is, is pretty much all I'm going to talk about. Um, because there were quite a lot of them. The, the best estimate I saw was by this gentleman, Ben Kiernan, and I used his estimate because, um, well, I'll say after why. But he estimates that between 1.67 and 1.87 million Cambodians died God. as a result of Khmer Rouge policy, and that's about a quarter 20, of the entire population what? of the country. With Ben Kiernan, f- just for the reason that um, he was also involved in the debate, there's, there's academic debate about whether this was genocide or not, because it wasn't technically like, you know, he certainly did oh. make a point to kill, like, the Chinese people living in the country, or the Vietnamese and, and the, the Muslims in the country. I was gonna say... But it was more, it was broader than that. It was like, he killed them not because they were Muslim, but because they were Muslim, they were a threat to the ideology because they were different, you know? So it wasn't technically like exterminating you could, you could, a group of people. You could connect that same it kind was just of killing yeah, everyone, logic is what you're saying, to kind of the, the Uyghurs in China, too. Because it's like, they're, the Chinese Communist Party isn't like re educating and. and in some instances, killing um, we Uyghurs. This is this is leading up to possibly be the first <laughs> pro Uyghur. Oh, I'm just saying, like, see how you I've finish it. Really? Go ahead. <laughs> really? <laughs> I no, I just want to hear oh, the end. All I was saying, saying is basically just like the Chinese aren't like at face value. What they say they're doing is they're not doing it because they're Muslim. They're doing it because they're a threat to the C- uh, CCP's power in Xinjiang. Like they claim it's that's that there's like a common or a uh, terror. There's Political. a terrorist threat, and they're re-educating people because they are concerned about terrorism and they want to maintain control of that area. And that's that's their justification for what they're doing there. But well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's it's. If if, it, if if you even don't think it's genocide, it's at very least cultural genocide, where it's like they're completely stamping out any kind of Uyghur culture in the area. They're re-educating people, which is exactly what's going on, in, and there's re-education and killings going on mm-hmm. in Cambodia at the time. And 
again, is not because they're Chinese, because they're Vietnamese, or because they're whatever. It's because they're a threat. That's that's the stated reason, at least. But, and that's where... And the, yeah, well, and the reason I went with Ben Kiernan's estimate was because mm-hmm. in that genocide debate, his take, he was also involved in that. And his kind of take was... Millions of people It died. doesn't really matter if it was a genocide exactly. or not. Like a th- he killed an insane amount of people. It's and and even having the discussion about whether it's genocide or not kind of takes away from the whole issue. You know, it shouldn't be taken less seriously just because it wasn't a genocide, right? So think about it this way: like, even if the low estimate was like what one point eight million was the lowest estimate, one point seven, yeah. So that's what like one point seven, one seventh of the uh, Holocaust, ish, ish. Um, sure. Well, yeah. let's talk about, well, we'll talk about this later, but accountability. Let's get back to that. Let's, uh, let's revisit accountability later, because that's something that is a, is a very important oh, okay. thing to talk yeah. about in relation to Pol Pot, is people being held accountable for those millions <clears throat> of deaths. Right. Uh, so let's see. We got the, the groups that were targeted were anyone smart, cultured, or professional including doctors, lawyers, politicians, in fact, especially those people, uh, anybody with Vietnamese blood, Chinese blood, the Cham Muslims from Cambodia, uh, any open adherence to religion at all. They estimate that 50,000 Buddhist monks so were massacred as part of this. Jesus. That's and fine. eventually it Sorry. got to the point, Greg, I'm just going to keep going. Sorry, I, I'd like to just get through this. Um <clears throat> It, the paranoia got to a point where there was what was called the Eastern Zone, and that was like the southeastern part of Cambodia, basically between Phnom Penh and Saigon. And Pol Pot decided that that area was the most likely to be taken over by bad ideology because it was on the Vietnamese border. And it was kind of like indiscriminate. He sent other people that weren't already stationed there over there and basically told them just, if somebody gives you bad vibes, kill them. God. And it, that included Khmer Rouge soldiers, troops, whatever. It's, it, it ended up working out that basically one in six people in that region was, was killed. Just for living there, basically. Wow. Jesus Christ. Now, a point I'd also like to make is that he had interesting ideas about how children should be raised. <laughs> and once you turn seven you weren't allowed to live with your parents anymore. You were sent to a Khmer Rouge education center because the government was supposed to be the only parent and the best parent that you could possibly need. And uh, they were taken to these centers and just kind of desensitized and taught loyalty to the party. And in fact, he used child soldiers pretty heavily in the killings and staffings of prisons and stuff. There was, I don't remember the name, but in one of the videos I was watching, they... uh, They gave a twelve-year-old the yeah, position a, of like a girl. regional administrator. Like a twelve-year-old girl. Country. She didn't God. do very well. Yeah, yeah. All I was gonna say <laughs> well, before came was Absolutely. that no way. when they were killing people with Chinese blood, I think that's extra ironic considering Pol mm-hmm. Pot's heritage, being a half, you know, partially Chinese person. Yeah, and and also. The Chinese were basically oh, the yeah. only people on the side of Cambodia and, and, through the entire guns, thing. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese were the people giving them money and weapons <laughs> and aid and food. Unbelievable. Well, believable, but, you know, crazy. 
<clears throat> and I've got, I've got an ideological quote from Pol Pot. He said, if you want to kill the grass, you also have to kill the roots. And what he was justifying in saying that was in a lot of cases, especially with the political people or people that were being executed for political reasons, mm -hmm. he would make a point to kill their entire family also so that nobody could come back uh, for like a revenge. You know, nobody would be angry. I know that revenge. like there was stuff where they were basically oh like God. interrogating people <clears throat> like and they would the interrogations essentially led to executions. And basically, if you were too young to be interrogated, they yeah. just kill you. Like, I I I think that it's ridiculous, uh, insane that, um, like, you know, you would think that the answer to oh they're too young to interrogate, the answer is oh just leave them be. You know that that's you know what you would assume, but no, just just kill them on the spot. Well, and Greg, it's it's worse than that because it's not it, it is the most inhumane and uh, like undignified really? way that they would kill these All children right, here. in a lot of cases. And I want to talk specifically about this facility called S21. I've heard of this. And this was... Go ahead. Uh, well, thank you. This was a high school that basically in 75 just immediately got converted to a prison and interrogation facility. And uh, basically over the course of four years, 20,000 people were imprisoned at this place. 12 people total didn't die. At it. Oh, God. And, uh, you know, children and infants, you can't really torture them. You know, well, they, you, can, you certainly can, but they can't give you information. So they would just kill them. And they're in this facility just outside of it because eventually they couldn't bury the bodies on the grounds anymore because there was no, much, no more room. Uh, this is where the killing fields started, a term you've probably heard if you've brushed up on this at all. And the largest of these was called Koyung Ek. And this was right outside this S21. And you can see pictures of a tree that has uh, like strings and bracelets attached to it. It's, it's a memorial tree because, and I'm not kidding when I say this, they would take infants and children and slam them you know, like, pick them up by the legs and slam them against the tree until they died. Jesus. God. I can't even, that's one thing. I had to, like, stop reading when yeah. I read that. I was like, what the, what is, this is basically, I mean, it's easier to just shoot someone. There's, like, hatred behind those actions. It's crazy. Exactly. Yeah, um, like, there is, like, a want for not just elimination, but, like, destruction. Is it harm, you yeah. know? I, I think that is the first thing on this podcast we've talked about that has made me physically ill. It's disgusting. Like that, that like this whole facility was crazy. Cause it was, I mean, they just turned classrooms into cell blocks and they would just build like brick walls between them. The cells were tiny and you would just get mm -hmm. shackled to iron bars. Couldn't wear clothing. Couldn't talk to anybody. No, you know, mats, no mosquito nets, blankets. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. It's complete. They got. They had a problem with too many inmates killing themselves with, you know, spoons, their bare hands if they could. So eventually it was just everybody had their hands tied behind their back at all times. The food you got was twice a day. You got four spoonfuls of rice pudding or rice porridge and a watery soup of leaves. Jesus. And you would get hosed down every four days. 
And as a result of that, skin diseases, lice, rashes, ringworm, all those things were very common. And when they didn't have the ability to provide food or water, they would be forced to eat the urine and feces of the guards and prison staff. Good Lord. Wow. And it's, it's like discussions like this, I just always think the same thing. It's like these are not extraordinarily like these are not like genetically evil people or like you know just outrageously like they're not they're not different you know these are just these are regular people there's no like virus that makes you this violent or aggressive towards other people there's no you know obviously like we identify like psychopaths and and whatnot but like for the most part like there's just regular people poisoned in a position yeah. i was gonna say ideology is what you can describe as the the x factor there the virus well yeah, yeah the well i didn't want to use the term virus because that <laughs> that's a little this day and age <laughs> yeah well but it's like when you get people yeah. together in one large group, they all start thinking the same thing. It just sees especially when it's fe- where it goes. Especially when it's fueled and by sadly, it goes really especially bad. Especially when it's fueled by the fear of execution. Yeah, right. The uh, these killing fields were very common because they needed to do something, and with the bodies. And since it was an agrarian society, a lot of the times the killing fields were next to the farms because they used the bodies as fertilizer. Jesus. And this this one I was talking about, Ko Young Ek, is now a, uh, it's, I don't want to say owned, facilitated or, you know, managed by the Buddhists. And there's a memorial there now with uh, thousands of human skulls in it. And all of the bones are still there. Like, you can walk around the ground and there's still just bones because the... They don't want to disturb the remains, basically. Mm. It's, it's like a religious thing. There are estimated to be about 20,000 mass graves across Cambodia from these killings with um, up to 2.5 million people buried in them. And because, uh, Greg, I don't know if this is something that tripped you when I was talking about the estimate. I think that estimate, the 1.67, was strictly like executions and not deaths as that resulted from like starvation or what have you because i think i like, believe i think like twenty thousand people alone died on the march out of phnom penh since yeah. they didn't well, give them anywhere to go or you know anything well to and, do or and they, they and they marched everybody out of the hospitals yeah and in the hottest month like, of the year yeah like pe- people that were like in the middle of dying in a hospital we're like, all right, well, unplug everything. You're out of here. Like, everybody's leaving. Like, think about that. Like, think about if you were on your deathbed, like, in the hospital, and you were just told, start marching. Like, you're going to die in, like, an hour, you yeah. know? And I'm sure there were, like, hundreds of people that succumbed to a similar fate, you know? Certainly. I'm sorry, I don't every... want to seem... Yeah. Go ahead. I just, I'm sure there were hundreds of people that you know, succumb to similar circumstances because, like, they made an effort to specifically empty hospitals. Right. Like, during that whole thing, which is just horrible to me. 
I don't want to come off as glib, but I I just kind of want to <laughs> move on and talk about is uh, the the fall. Uh, the the big thing that ruined him, and I Paul, I don't want to step on your toes here. No, go ahead. Just because it wasn't any secret at, at near the end that this wasn't really working, and like you know tensions were high. But what really really screwed him over was Pol Pot thought, okay, well, it is time to invade Vietnam. <laughs> Things have gone <laughs> yeah. on long enough. We need to go to war with what? Vietnam. Didn't work out well. Who just recently won a conflict with the most powerful nation in the world. <laughs> God. Um, I don't actually, like, I didn't actually read much about the invasion, but, like, it did not work. They definitely... Like, uh, months, right? Well, once the Vietnamese formally invaded, uh, I think they had almost every city in Cambodia within, like, two days. Oh, wow. It, it took yeah, no Yeah, it was time. very one-sided. I, I knew it was quick. Because um, I think it was, like, they kept, like, provoking war. They were doing, like, you know, just shooting Vietnamese troops on the border and just kind of poking. And that's why even, even I think it was Mao. It could have been Deng. But basically it was like, yeah you caused this war with Vietnam. So um, uh, that's why they didn't want to like help them out in the war. Um, so Paul, do you think, are you prepared to, I know I'm ending on like a, uh, basically a, a wall. I mean, there's no real smooth transition, but are you, do you have a way to pick up and talk about the fall of Paul, Paul, Paul Pot? Yeah, I don't really talk about like the Vietnamese Cambodian War. I mean, it's just because they lost the war. They they tried to go to war with Vietnam immediately. They lost it. Well, it days. was dra- it was dragged on like it was what like ten or eleven years, and basically they, you know, Cambodia started attacking Vietnam, and Vietnam just is like, "Fuck you," and we're gonna invite. And they basically invaded Cambodia and took over, and became became a guerrilla war from there on out. Yeah, that's really the case, but, but um, I mean, China got involved big time too, right? Yeah, but like China, and I was kind of confused on that a little bit too, because, you know, China obviously backed Vietnam during the Vietnam mm-hmm. War with America. So if, in my brain, it was like, well, who does Vietnam really side with here? Do they continue siding with Vietnam and or do they side with Cambodia, which they've already kind of have been doing as well? And they basically, China, what they do is they, like, fund both um, (laughs) just to have, like, a, I guess, a piece of the pie, like, a hand in everything. But um, Cambodia does kind of also bank on some capitalist funding, too, because you got to remember, like, the United States is still pretty angry at Vietnam for fucking losing there. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, like, you know undercover CAA, they're going to fund Cambodia to attack Vietnam as much Love as they that. can, which they won't, they obviously won't admit that nowadays. But um, but basically where my notes start is 1979, um, during the fight with Vietnam, Pol Pot actually changes his name again. He changes his name to Them, P-H-E-M, but um, all in all, he's created this notoriety of being known as Pol Pot, so them like is his name in quotes but it's it's still Pol Pot like everyone calls him that and all that stuff so um 
Mr. Pot, <laughs> as we may say. Um, but during the Vietnam um, Cambodian War, you start seeing a swing in ideology in the Khmer Rouge because they're losing, <laughs> as as we've stated earlier. So, Pot ordered an end to executions, um, which was kind of like a like oh okay that's kind of odd. Um, Rouge members change camouflage, change to camouflage. So they start to become more like militarily dressed rather than their black uniforms as they were known to wear. Specifically, um, Thai made camouflage from what I'm what I'm reading, which is interesting. Um, a bit, yeah. Uh, well, I mean the pattern. No, I just I just, I just meant that Thai safari. Yeah, exactly. I, I, just, I just meant that the only thing I was trying to mention there was that the Thai involvement with this whole conflict was also interesting. Seeing where that I mean that's something to note for the region is yeah. that you know Thailand is actually a very strong country when it comes to that region, so you'll see I think I have in my notes a little bit later like Bangkok gets mentioned mentioned a couple times because they're neutral in all this because they're like hey you know y'all deal with your fucking shit over there, but if you guys step a foot in this country you will get the Thai military which is is actually pretty formidable compared to the other ones but. Um, so senior members also began disavowing socialism in the way that they were, yeah, I, yeah, I had to read that <laughs> twice. Um, but in the way that they were like treating it. So like, um, uh, kind of continuing through this, like this is all done to try to gain more and more support from local Cambodians. Cause obviously the mass executions, the mass murdering and genocide is not very popular amongst the local populace <laughs> who would have guessed. So um, they tried to kind of backtrack a little bit to be like, hey, you know, still support us. Like, you know, hate the Vietnamese more than you hate us. Um, so they tried to like kind of backtrack on some of their things um, in 1979, kind of the start of the Vietnamese War. Um, but like what I was saying earlier, like in November of 79, the UN General Assembly recognized the Khmer Rouge instead of the Vietnamese government as the legitimate government of Cambodia. And I think that still stems directly from the United States' influence over the UN General Assembly, saying that, like, hey, we'd rather support the Khmer Rouge than the Vietnamese, like the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese that beat us in war. Um, so I think that's why you see the Khmer Rouge have any foothold in the kind of global um, politics when it comes to that. But um, later in December of that same year, Pol Pot was actually replaced. Um, so that he could focus solely on military efforts just because it was coming down to the point where like, hey, if we don't focus on this war, like there won't be a Khmer Rouge anymore um, or a country to really lead yeah. in and kind yeah. of rule over. So, <laughs> um, But between 79 and 81, uh, Pol Pot's efforts were focused on recruiting the youth of Cambodia as he thought this would be the only way to defeat the Vietnamese, basically taking that same guerrilla tactic um, as the Viet Cong used against the United States with Vietnam um, because they were, they were fighting on their own turf in that, in that sense in Cambodia. So along with this, um, he traveled to China on several occasions to increase the amount of supplies that they were sending to the Khmer Rouge. Very uh, American of the Chinese in this situation. Fund both sides of the war. That's, yeah. that's classic. <laughs> well, I mean... That way you have, yeah. To me, that's like a, it's not necessarily, well, it definitely 
reminiscent of America, but just any major superpower. Oh, it's yeah. like, I really don't care about what's going on here. <laughs> but what I want is the status quo to stay the same, so I'll fund both. And whoever ends up winning, I'll claim that I support them, you know. That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's how you still have influence on whoever yeah, wins. Exactly. It's like, yeah. hey, remember how we supported you? Yeah. Like, forget the idea that we support the other guys. Mm-hmm. Like, that didn't really yeah. happen. But um, the most sweeping of changes was in December of 1981, where Pol Pot and Nuan Che, I think is how you say his yep. last name, um, they announced that they would dissolve the Communist Party of Kampuchea, uh, which was a shock to many senior leaders, obviously. Um, and some thought it was actually a ruse for them to go back underground. But later, obviously, it was not. So the CPK was replaced by a military directorate focused on still on driving out the Vietnamese out of Cambodia. So still kind of focusing on that military effort so that they don't lose Cambodia entirely. Pol Pot's decision was... uh, Kind of the decision like to disband CPK was like of conflict. So, um, and kind of like I said earlier, it's because he was being backed by capitalist nations, um, and Vietnam was solely being backed by Marxist nations. So, um, and, and then like, you know, Pol Pot was like, they were still being backed by China, but like China, like in Pol Pot's like paranoia, he still thought China wasn't really thinking the best interests of the mm. CPK. So he decided to disband it and kind of just like re you know, go back, I wouldn't say back to, like, Khmer Rouge, like, tactics and that, not tactics, but, like, you know, organizational. Um, yeah, it sounded setup. like he needed it to, like, evolve so that it continued to just center <laughs> around him. Yes, and, and the mm-hmm. Khmer Rouge in that sense, where, like, the CPK is very much, like, a political party in a sense, where the Khmer Rouge is, like, okay, we're really yeah. shit gets done we, or like the actual leaders reside i mean i know we're kind of backtracking by saying this or at least i am but wasn't the Khmer rouge like started as the militant arm of a party it was not like Khmer rouge wasn't the party that was like the militant fighters of supporting the party it's not like a yeah. huge what know, it's i not see a huge point to make or anything but the the analogy or like similarity i see in this is like almost like feudal japan oh or it's like yeah there's you know there's emperors and stuff like that but it's the shogun yeah. that's really <laughs> fucking who gets yes. shit done who's actually the real leader that's how i would compare okay. this to that's helpful you know where like the cpk is like oh you know the fancy like political party and like you know probably more than what the emperors of japan were but like the Khmer Rouge is actually the people that are getting shit done you know the actually people to fear on the ground so um but from 81 to 85, Pot remained in the military, moving around base to base, um, you know, throughout Cambodia and, and basically just trying to, to win this war as best he could. He was actually diagnosed with, um, I think it was Hodgkin's disease. Yeah, yeah um, in 83. So this is kind of the start of the decline of his health. But in 85, he was actually pushed back into Thailand. And that's where he kind of talks about, like, he would travel from Bangkok to China back and forth trying to gain more support from the Chinese. What is that disease? Which, Sorry to bring it back to that. But lymphoma? 
It's cancer. That yeah, it's a type of cancer. Oh, that's the lymph yeah, nodes, I believe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hodgkin's disease. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know yeah. a young lad who had it. In so. fact, mm. survived it. Yeah, but. not fun. Non Hodgkins. His name is Ryder Marshall. <laughs> I hope well, I can get away with saying that, but he's from Wyoming. <laughs> he probably won't ever hear this. So it's quite a name. It's cool. Probably not. If he if he if he does, though, leave a comment. <laughs> How dare you bring um, up my cancer? <laughs> um, that same year, he actually resigned as the commander in chief. Pol Pot did, but stuck around, uh, and obviously still had a large influence over military decisions. So. He resigned, but he's still around. So, kind of getting into the fall of the Khmer Rouge. So, the end of the Cold War had very bad consequences for the Khmer Rouge. So, once the U.S. deemed Vietnam not to be worth any more of their attention, because, like, communism, like, once the Soviet Union fell, communism kind of like, okay, we don't need to worry about this as much anymore. They stopped recognizing the Khmer Rouge as a legitimate government, um, both like the U.S. and obviously the U.N. Such General Assembly. So that Let's just oh, dude, I love that, love that. <laughs> well, and exactly. Well, I mean, just basically like you know, if anyone else was supporting the Khmer Rouge in any form or fashion, they are now not, because what's you know the U.N. and the U.S. like yeah, these people are not actually legitimate. Then you know they're not getting shit. So. But a ceasefire was actually signed in 1990, and democratic elections were to be had that same year. Um, amazingly, though, um, I guess not so much. Amazing. But the Vietnamese, <laughs> the Vietnamese-backed uh, Hun Sen was elected, and stated the first order of business is to put the Khmer Rouge on trial. Nice. The, you know who yeah. saw that coming? Yeah. So old Polly Pot <laughs> built a new base. <laughs> and attempted to, <laughs> yeah, and attempted to gain support in defense of the Khmer Rouge, obviously through the local populace. So throughout this time, um, they basically move around throughout the Cambodian jungle, building new bases and stuff like that. And they actually did seize quite like a substantial territory um, because like there was a ceasefire. And the Vietnamese, like, back dude was in charge of Cambodia at this time. But, you know, it's, it's all just territorial battles at that point. But the Khmer Rouge became very confrontational and actually began mass murders across the country, primarily of Vietnamese um, settlers that were coming from Vietnam to now settle in Can- Cambodia. But it was fairly indiscriminate um, when it came village to village, so... But the, the Khmer Rouge attempted to change its name. I forget what it was, um, but obviously they're still known as the Khmer Rouge. And attempted to run in the next elections, but obviously failed. Um, but the people who won that election, and I'll mention them once more in my next line, but it was called the, the Funkin' Pack. That's how you say the acronym, and they were known as the National United Front for an Independent, Neutral, Peaceful, and Cooperative Cambodia. So, quite the freaking title. Yeah, it was in May of 1993, right? What's the phrase, brevity is the soul yeah. of wit? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Couldn't shorten well, that a when little you can bit, save guys. space, When you can save text in your name and your slogan, I think that's yeah. where they win. 
There you go. <laughs> Maybe that's one. what they're going yeah. for. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Between 94 and 96, the Khmer Rouge continued holding territory until in 96, mutiny actually broke out um, in com- combination of the new legitimate co- Cambodian governments. Um, they took control of the lost territory that the Khmer Rouge obviously gave up through their mutiny. But towards the end, Pol Pot's health was drastically declining, and he actually had a stroke, leaving him paralyzed across his whole left side. So he's basically just, you know, the shell of the leader he once was. And then later in 97, kind of acting more on his paranoia, he ordered the execution of Sun Sen, which was another leader of the Khmer Rouge. So um, Self-destruction. I didn't say what... Yeah, yeah, basically, he's just like, okay, kill everyone around me that he feels like he can't trust yeah. anymore. So Sun Sen and 13 of his family members were killed. And it made a note, too, of, like, it was not directly related to Pol Pot or he didn't truly give the order of the 13 <laughs> members of his family, but, like... Yeah, he he winked and someone that, was assassinated. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's like, kill this guy, and then they killed everyone related to that guy, too. It's like, oh, I guess... I'm not upset about it, in quotes, Pol Pot. <laughs> um, and then another man by the name of Ta Mok, um, who was another Khmer Rouge leader, feared he would be next to be executed by Pol Pot, so he sent men actually to go after and kill Pot. Um, but Pol Pot fled on foot, in quotes. He was actually carried <laughs> because he was paralyzed. Oh, yeah. oh not what I thought. Yeah, you know. he's, very, he's very frail. But, Yes, yeah, exactly. That's the note to be made. He's very frail at this point. So, um, But he escaped um, along with his family, and I forget where, I assume Thailand again, but um, during his exile, he was interviewed for the last time, um, kind of like, I guess not his really last time, because it mentions this dude later, but by an American journalist about what he has done, and to the end, he, you know, he claimed, like, Pol Pot in quotes, I want you to know that everything I did, I did for my country. So even to the end, he was like, you know, kind of justifying himself that like all the killings, all the, you know, executions and assassinations, he did it for the betterment of Cambodia, which obviously very, very debatable. (laughs) Are you going to say what he said about the killing of kids? Very debatable. Um, I didn't, Uh, I guess I didn't write that one down. Basically during that same interview, he, he also rejected the idea that millions had died saying, (laughs) quote, to say that millions had died is too much. And that, (laughs) okay, you know, you know, for the, you know, for the other people, the babies, the young ones, I did not order them to be killed. So he basically denied responsibility because he didn't directly order their deaths. Sure. He's reverse Nuremberg. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> basically, it's like if a child wears glasses, I didn't give those it's like, orders. well, I didn't kill him because he was a kid. It's because he was wearing glasses, yeah. you know. Exactly. Get it straight. <laughs> yeah, it's in the, the minor mm-hmm. details, but minor um, in July. Yeah, right. In July 1997, Pol Pot and three other uh, Khmer Rouge commanders that were still loyal to him were brought before. Uh, they were actually brought before the Khmer Rouge. <laughs> funny enough. And they were sentenced to prison, or he was sentenced to prison, while the other three commanders were executed, obviously. The interesting thing about that, uh, a 
U.S. journal, uh, American journalist named Nate Thayer was there for that. And he actually, he actually yep. was filming the whole thing. Oh, jeez. Yes, in April 1980, Pol Pot actually died in his sleep, apparently of heart failure. Um, and that's very same American journalist um, that was staying with him claims that old Potty himself killed himself with poison out of fear that the commuters would hand him over to the U.S. Which, like in my brain, like I don't see how that would be like a bad thing, like getting handed over to the U.S. Because the U.S. would probably execute him the way we execute random world leaders that do bad <laughs> things. But like talking like Saddam Hussein and stuff yeah. like that. But like you like like I don't know. I think there's like just like in essence just hones in on Pol Pot's paranoia <laughs> because the dude was paralyzed. He had fucking cancer. The dude he was gonna die eventually anyways. Like where that's where it like it says they claims that he killed mm-hmm. himself. The heart failure, honestly, like seems like the more legitimate answer, just because dude was on his deathbed for the last like yeah. two, three years, anyways. So um, that's kind of where I ended it, just because you know we're talking Pol Pot necessarily. Camaro Rouge, he ended. like the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, like the Khmer Rouge obviously probably went on to fucking disbanding and shit like that, but. I wanted to touch a little bit, and I didn't find necessarily what I was looking for, but, like, just kind of opening up for discussion here. Like, one fact I found about, like, uh, Cambodia today, 70% of their population today, um, or depending on when this article was written, back in 2019, I guess. So 79, or excuse me, 70% of Cambodia's population is now under the age of 30. Wow. Wow. That's a very, very young population, obviously, because everyone else over that age was yeah. killed. Jeez. Um, you know, how you talked about, like, a quarter of the population of Cambodia was killed through genocide. I mean, one out of four. <laughs> that, Think about all the people yeah. you know, and one out of every four of them, gone forever. Exactly. Um, like, like, and that's where I kind of want to talk about, like, Cambodia. Like, can you imagine the struggles... In the sense that, like, hey, yeah, like most of the people uh, are just, you know, in their twenties, right, yeah. or younger, yeah, like the expertise country, drain like, that occurred, right, well, especially if it's your doctors and your lawyers and your professors and stuff who were killed, like, I mean, just everything, drain. like all your expertise and everything, yeah. and and then also that too, it's like, you know, I don't know, I just think about like. You know, how do you make decisions? Like, these bunch of 20-year-old kids who can't even decide what to eat for lunch. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, you're talking, you know, where they can decide for their country in a sense, and you, gotta, you know, voting-wise and all that. And you got to consider, like, also, how do you deal with that? Because, like, China dealt, dealt with that same issue by restricting the births of children. And now they're at a point where their population <laughs> is shrinking already, like 15 years after that. Or yeah, at least and I their, think birth, Cambodia their, birth, their birth rate is getting below the, you know, 2.0, 2.0, yeah. Yeah, Cambodia can't do that, obviously, because, like, you know, there's just, there's a quarter of the people gone yeah. to begin with. So it's not like they're, like, they don't need more people, no. like how China yeah, has. Yeah, no, I just... They honestly just need time. I think they just need yeah. time. 
they're going to have obviously this like in essence a boomer generation just because they don't have other people but it's a weird situation to be Absolutely. in. Absolutely. You were going to say something, King? Yeah, I got four points, if I may. Sure. If I may be so brazen. <laughs> Go for it. Um, Hit it. One. Something that we don't really have even a way to grab, and I don't really have a point in saying this, but something we don't really have uh, the ability to grasp just because America hasn't been a country for that long. And, you know, thinking of ourselves historically, like, it starts in, like, you know, 17th, 17th century, but... <clears throat> It must be so weird. Not even weird. I don't know what word to describe the emotion. Being Cambodian and thinking about, like, looking at Angkor Wat and how, you know, something I wanted to mention we were talking about earlier. Have you seen, like, the aerial foot? Like, how perfect the square is? It's, like, it's beautiful. It's insane. It's, like, 900 years old almost, isn't it? Isn't it from, like, the 12th century? (laughs) Something like that, yeah. That's when, like, the... Khmer Empire was huge. So I guess I don't know when Angkor Wat is. I, we can look that up. But that's, I think, when the Khmer Empire was was the biggest, was the 12th century. And it's so weird having, like, you've got this meteoric high where you were, like, running things in Southeast. Probably the dominant force in Asia, aside from China, at that time. And then you also have on your history books just, like, w- one of the worst genocides in history, you know. Super recent, just history a very storied too. history. Yeah, yeah, and the one that most people yeah. in the Western kind of sphere of influence think of when they think of Cambodia too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't. We I know don't. They think, did mention. We don't think of Angkor Wat. We think of Pol Pot. Yeah, I know. Like, um, like maybe that's something like they would. They probably should like get back to in their like old like like historical heritage and stuff like that too. Because many of the articles I did read were. They talk about, like, Cambodia is such a new country, and they base it off just the fact that, like, you know, the this, what we call Cambodia now, started in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so it's only been, you know, 30 True. years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they've got a lot of time to make up. The next thing was, and I, I feel this is true, I saw some YouTube comments on one of the videos I watched. Um, Pol Pot, perhaps the least deserving person to die of natural causes. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, th- I believe he died of suicide. You think it's suicide? I absolutely. Cause it was like, well, I mean, well, an- even if he died of suicide, how right. many decades did he live after that? After the, genocide? Oh yeah. It's crazy. Too many, <clears throat> too many. Yeah. yeah. Too many. He should have died more in the, he almost cracked a uh, hundred. Gaddafi. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, getting a pole shoved up his ass. The oh, other two points I had. Well, are about if you're not familiar, yeah, Gaddafi, that's pretty much the he story. got he got it ass pulled, yeah. Um, <laughs> the other two points I have are about the episode and not the content. So if we if anybody else has more to talk about uh, Pol Pot or Cambodia related, we'll get that just, out of the way first. We just got to do our scoring, Putin scale. Oh, yeah, we'll see. Putin's, the problem is, and this oh, is tough yeah. because this we're going from one Putin to how many Putin. This is going to set how the scale works. What right, we decide yeah. right here, right now. And I think, what's the cash? Ten. Ten Putins? Ten. Ten yeah. Putins, okay. Should we... Let's give him a... I'm, think, I'm thinking like a... Seven six. or eight. Six or seven. I was thinking seven six. or eight. So maybe seven? Seven. We'll seven. settle on seven Putins? I think it's a seven Putins. Yeah, seven that feels okay. good. It gives us some room still, because I don't even think we've determined who yeah. else we're going yeah. with. Exactly. 
Um, <clears throat> now, as far as notes on the episode, one. Uh, maybe we should try to tighten these up a little bit. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> we pretty effortlessly hit two uh, yeah. about two hours every time now, and uh, maybe people don't like listening to that much. Uh, whether you do or don't, maybe just tell us because we just kind of do this as it comes. I need to shut up, Greg. Uh, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Sorry, it's a team effort. Yeah. Um. But I am also not very happy with how I took notes because, like, I didn't write down everything I should have. I'm not as talented as I think I am, and I really need to write down more because there were a lot of things that I remembered during Paul's part that I wanted to say, but I didn't want to go back to talking about Mm. the Ricky killings and everything. Mm. Um, So sorry. And I also got, like, once I started talking about it, it was very, like, impassioned. So I very readily, very easily forgot some of the things I wanted to talk about because that was pretty rough. So maybe if we do more where there's uh, some real ugly stuff, let's maybe rotate talking about that. Mm. All right. Works for me. And I also think that we should be a little more organized leading up to the episode, too, perhaps. This was the worst we've been. And it's my yeah. fault, but um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm playing on a flu game right now because I had I woke up at like 3 p.m. because I okay. <laughs> went to the bars last night. And I didn't go to bed oh, wow. until like 6 a.m. But um, <clears throat> regardless, and one thing we didn't mention. So this is it's both an episode note and a Cambodian note. The music I'm going with, I think I've played for all of you at some point. Ooh, yeah, yes. Do you know what it I'm is for already? This one. I, I oh, know it's psychedelic rock. Yeah. Okay. Because important note, and I mean, oh, I'm thinking the Cambodian on. music scene right before this was exploding because they were exposed to a lot of psychedelic rock because of U.S. soldiers, oh. and so there was like a huge growing psychedelic rock scene in Cambodia right up before this. And I've played, I think, for all of you, and this is what the music will be is this guy, Sin Sisamuth. I don't know how, God knows if that's correct, but (laughs) he did a cover of House of the Rising Sun. Sick. And they had this kind of like the Khmer music was like psychedelic rock with a lot of influences from traditional Khmer music. And so presumably that'll be kicking on now. Anything else from you guys? While the music slowly ramps up in volume? (laughs) Okay. Well... Let's figure out off the record who the next one is, so it's a bit of a surprise. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs>